There's a reason Baker's Nursery in Yemassee has been in business for over a quarter of a century. Quality, selection, and competitive pricing. From one-gallon plants to fully mature trees, Gary and Charlene have it all. Baker's is located off Highway 21 in Yemassee, one mile from Harold's Country Club. Baker's is open 8 to 4 daily till 2 on Fridays and can be found at the Port Royal Farmer's Market on Saturday. They can be reached at 843-589-8156 or online at bakersnurseryllc.com. Heaven Sent, a place of grace, Christian books and gifts, offers a wide variety of Christian books, Bibles, music, videos, as well as gifts and collectibles, including a section devoted to children. Heaven Sent, a place of grace, is located inside the Scottish Mill Shop, 1200 Fording Island Road in Bluffton. Additional information on Heaven Sent, a place of grace, is available from Lynn Jackson at 843-837-4727. Welcome to The Light, 88.7 FM Bible Live, a live radio call-in with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina, and for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question for Dr. Brogy, you may call 525-1859 or on your Altel cellular phone, star 887. If you're calling outside our immediate area, call toll-free, 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible Line. We welcome questions you may have as it relates to your personal life or ministry or uh, wrestling with a passage of Scripture. If we can uh, help today, all you need to do is pick up the phone and call us uh, locally. The number is 525-1859, 843-525-1859. Or for those listening outside the state, we have a toll-free number, and that number is 877. Our call letters, WAGP 980. Uh, either way, when you call, you can remain anonymous or go on the air live, or if it's easier for you, you can email us directly into the studio. Uh, you, the email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at net. All right, Rick, great to be here as always, and I think we've already had some questions that have come in today, so let's go ahead and get started. We have indeed. We got a question from Texas. The listener says, I've asked this question before. But you've answered it more as a teen day, so I'm assuming you're not familiar with the practice of churches making pleas for pre-teen and early teen boys to be called to preach. I visited several fundamental independent Baptist churches and some Southern Baptist churches where, in addition to giving a call to see if anyone wants to be saved after every service, they also ask in most services if anyone is called to preach. They do this even in young children's classes where they're not only asking if anyone wants to be saved, but um, or rather uh, anyone wants to be saved, but also being called to preach. As a result, they are, there are several young boys ranging from preteens to early teens who respond as being called to preach. On vacation the other day, a couple at a church I visited and their 13-year-old boy told me their uh, son had been called to preach, and he was talking about how he was going to preach the salvation message at his birthday party. 
is it biblically sound for the fundamental independent Baptists and some Southern Baptist churches to be asking these young boys to be called to preach, and then when the boys respond to be saying that the boys are called to preach? Uh, This is uh, not an uncommon practice. In these churches, you will often hear of several boys who have been called to preach, and these boys are encouraged by sometimes preaching to the congregation and oftentimes publicly announced and promoted by name to the congregation as being called to preach. This does not seem sound to me. Please advise. Well, it's an interesting question. I don't think we've had it before. Um, But I am familiar, of course, with the practice of uh, Southern Baptist, independent Baptist churches, and it's certainly not limited to those groups, though I think those would be the uh, two denominational affiliations where it's certainly highlighted, where sometimes a pastor will, even during the time of invitation, invite people who, quote-unquote, feel called to preach to make that public. Uh, I don't want to totally criticize the practice um, because, number one, I think there's a, a number of people who are in the pulpits of America today who need to be in the pews. God never called them. But on the other hand, I think there's a great number of people who are in the pews who need to be in the pulpits. Uh, The harvest is still plentiful and the laborers are few. And I do think it's important that we uh, put out there uh, in prayer and in encouragement for people to consider their gifts and abilities and ultimately to use them in a way that pleases the Lord. Now, what is a call to preach? Maybe that would be helpful just to start You know, when you mentioned here in your email that even in some grammar school classes, they're inviting kids to see whether or not they're called to preach. I think that's grossly premature. If anything, you ought to be thinking about the call to salvation in that age or a call to begin to grow. You know, sometimes people think, well, a call to preach is, you know, getting knocked off your horse like Martin Luther did during a violent thunderstorm and Uh, You know, he had a call from God. Well, God can certainly do that in a dramatic way, but I don't think that is typical. Most men that I've known over the years, uh, myself included, there was just a growing burden in one's heart that this is what they needed to do. And again, if uh, God has called you to preach, I think he will indeed give you the gifts and the abilities that will match that call. God doesn't give someone the gift of helps or serving and call them to be a pastor. Um, I think there are certainly other uh, speaking gifts that could be associated with that office, but certainly, say, the gift of serving or the gift of mercy would not be, say, the prevalent gift in a person's life if God had called them to preach. And again, I think, too, in a lot of these churches where uh, young men have felt the call, all they've really felt from God is a, a, a call to go further with Christ, to go deeper with Christ, to to want to serve him. And if you're a growing Christian, your ministry really is an overflow of your relationship with God. Uh, I think it is uh, somewhat unwise to take a young man and to give him a platform uh, prematurely where you would allow him, say, to preach a sermon on a Sunday morning. Uh, God warns in his word in 1 Timothy when he gives us uh, the qualifications for an elder that you do not choose a new believer lest he become conceited and fall into the snare of the devil. 
Uh, I remember Dr. Graham many, many years ago saying that one of the great mistakes that he made in his ministry is he put people on the platform who had not really been tested. And I've witnessed that myself. I remember many, many years ago, um, we were having a uh, regional conference for Campus Crusade for Christ, and B.J. Thomas was uh, asked to come and to be the provided entertainment. I think this was in 1980, if I remember correctly. In fact, uh, attendance uh, just doubled that year. We went from a conference of around 500 to a conference of over 1,000 college students because they all wanted to hear B.J. Thomas. But I remember him singing, and he had a great voice, and uh, he sang most of the songs he had not written, but he had sang at the time a number of songs written by a really mature, godly man by the name of Pat Terry, who was a famous Christian artist in the uh, 70s and 80s, and especially in the state of Georgia, the greater Atlanta area. And he sang a number of his songs that made them national and very, very popular. But I remember him speaking between the songs, and I thought, does this guy even know Christ? Does he even understand the gospel? And of course, it wasn't a short time later after he'd sold millions of records to naive Christians uh, that he ended up uh, abandoning the Christian faith. I forgot what he became, a Buddhist or something, but um, it's unwise to put an untested person, and certainly even if the person is a believer, an immature believer, on a platform because it's not going to help him. It's going to hurt him. Now, that's not to say that you wouldn't want to give an opportunity, say, to a high school student in some venue in which to be able to begin to exercise his spiritual gifts. But it should be age appropriate and it should be done with wisdom and very, very carefully. So uh, I'm not going to say categorically that if a pastor says, you know, someone feels called to preach, but I, I think it's most of the time misunderstood. And again, if a man has a call to preach, the gifts will match it, and there will be a sense from other mature godly people that God's hand is on that individual's life, and indeed he has called the, the person. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980. And you can always email us at tbl at wagp.net. A listener just called in and dictated their question. They'd like to know, are all the judgments in Revelation for, the, uh, for after the tribulation, or have some been fulfilled shortly after the time John was writing? Uh, some say none have been fulfilled, and some say all have been fulfilled. Would you please explain? Well, there are some people, usually they call themselves uh, Reformed Christians, and this is not true categorically, but they look at Revelation largely as historical until the 19th chapter. The problem with uh, interpreting Revelation in that way is you really have to spiritualize a number of passages in God's Word, Uh, but there are Christian writers who have said, well, you know, the Antichrist has already been here. He was here in the first century. The events of, you know, Revelation have already taken place. And, uh, well, they couldn't have, not of this magnitude, and certainly uh, not if you just interpret the Scripture in a plain, simple way. Uh, The Lord, for instance, uh, speaks of a time that is coming that will embrace the entire earth. For instance, in Revelation 3, in verse 7, he says, I will keep you from the hour of testing 
that hour that is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Whole world. And uh, that's never happened. There's never been a test upon the whole world. And when you start reading through the Revelation uh, and you look at the the nature of the judgments, um, when did indeed, uh, you know, when was there an earthquake where the sun became black as sackcloth and made of hair and the whole moon became like blood red and the star? Well, some would say that happens at the second coming. So I'll give them credit for that. But when did... um, when, when the ashen horse came, who, who death and Hades sat upon it, um, when was this, this huge famine that came upon the earth? You read some of these judgments where a third of the whole world's population is wiped out. In another case of those remaining, half of the world's population is wiped out. I mean, when did anything like that happen? When did two prophets come who call fire literally out of heaven? Uh, these are judgments that are still yet in the future. They've never literally happened. But uh, the reason I think some people spiritualize these is because of their view of Israel. And it always comes back to what is your view of Israel? Uh, did God make some promises that were unconditional in nature that he has yet to keep regarding the people of Israel? If he did, then Revelation has a future fulfillment. If the promises that God made to the people of Israel were conditional in nature, in their failure, they have been abandoned as a people. As St. Augustine first started teaching, as Luther and Calvin later highlighted, then the church, quote-unquote, becomes the new Israel, and you cannot literally interpret the book of Revelation. The problem with that is you you, you end up not applying a consistent hermeneutic. That is a consistent principle for interpreting the Word of God. What I find interesting is that Calvin wrote a commentary in every book of the Bible except Revelation. And really, he, he didn't know what to do with it. He had trouble because in his theology, the church had become the new Israel. and We had usurped and replaced national Israel. So he didn't know how to approach this book. But l- l- think about it just in terms of Bible prophecy. How were the prophecies for the first coming of Jesus Christ fulfilled? Well, they were literally fulfilled, every single one of them. Over 300 prophecies were literally fulfilled just as God said them. In fact, um, one of the ways we know how to interpret the Bible is the example that the New Testament gives us in interacting with the Old Testament. So you find New Testament writers interacting with Old Testament prophets, and they grammatically, historically, plainly interpret the text. In uh, every prophecy for the first coming of Christ was literally fulfilled. So why we think that the prophecies for the second coming will be fulfilled any differently is just crazy. Because God within the scriptures gave us a principle on how to interpret the scriptures. Um, listen, if the... if if a literal interpretation is not correct, then God gave us a faulty model in the way Jesus and the apostles interacted with the Scripture. Maybe literal interpretation has been misunderstood because people think that when we use that term, we're denying you know metaphors and figures of speech, and we're not. In fact, I'd say probably in the last 10 years, the phraseology that conservative Bible-believing Christians prefer to use, rather than saying we believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible, is that we believe in a plain interpretation of the Bible. 
Uh, they think it's a broader word that would encompass, you know, grammatical, historical, um, contextual issues. Um, in either case, uh, no, the events and the judgments of the revelation are still in the future. They've never been fulfilled, but they are going to be fulfilled uh, during a time in human history that Jesus describes as absolutely horrible. And what is fascinating to do, if you've never done this, is to go to the Olivet Discourse in, in Matthew 24 and to look at Matthew 24, 3 through 12, and then 14 to, to 30, and to see how it parallels what you find in Revelation 4 through 19. It's absolutely remarkable, but it's not remarkable because the same Spirit wrote both books, and and uh, you would expect a, a dovetailing of truth, and there is. Well, okay, very good. Looking forward, we do have another question. Um, this person asks, uh, referring to Luke 17, verses 22 to 37, reference to the second coming of Christ at the uh, end of the Great Tribulation period and not the rapture, um, when Christ tells them to be ready, that it will be like the days of Noah, that they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until Noah entered the ark and they were destroyed. How could people in the Great Tribulation be so caught off guard? How could people of the Tribulation be living a normal life as described by the Lord Jesus and be so unprepared for that coming? Well, remember when the Great Tribulation period happens, um, there's a rheostat of wrath that is turned up. Um, it starts very subtly and it increases in intensity. And that's the pattern that you see through the book of Revelation. And when God, by the way, brings these judgments upon the earth, it's really an act of his mercy. I mean, there are a great number of people who repent. John likens them in Revelation 7 to the sands of the seashore. You say, well, who are those people? Well, I think they're primarily people who had not heard the gospel in clarity and power before. Because, of course, Second Thessalonians 2 instructs us that when the great apostasy comes, when the man of lawlessness is uh, revealed, there will be a group of people who will not say, oh, yeah, this is what I always heard those born-again Christians speak of, and uh, I guess now I need to receive Jesus as my Savior. Uh, that won't happen because the Bible says when that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end at the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Now follow this because uh, prior to this great time of tribulation that Jesus uh, in Matthew 24, describes as a unique time in human history. He said it will be so awful that unless God had cut those days short, there would be no human survivors upon the earth. No flesh would survive. Um, when that day comes, there will be people who did not, prior to the start of that day, receive the truth so as to be saved. And so the Bible says, and for this reason, for what reason? In Second Thessalonians 2.11, for the reason he just gave, because of their, their, their lack of response to the gospel, for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So when you say, how, how could people be so asleep 
Well, it, because it will be a, a judgment of God. You know, it's very interesting when you think of the wrath of God, most of the time we think of the wrath of God just simply as a a future dimension. And there certainly is a future dimension to it that the Bible over and over and over again highlights. But there's a present dimension to the wrath of God that the Bible also speaks of in Romans 1. Uh, Paul speaks of the fact, uh, let me just turn there for a second, because really Second Thessalonians 2 is an illustration of it. But he says in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, because God made it evident to them. For since the creation of his, the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen so that they are without excuse. So though they knew God, they didn't honor him as God. Therefore, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts. That's the wrath of God being displayed today. When God lets a person go, it becomes a an expression of his wrath, a judgment that God brings on people today. So while there's a future dimension, there's a present dimension to God's wrath, God's wrath that is being revealed. And that wrath will, for some, again, who I think never heard the gospel in clarity and in power, some who have never even heard the name of Jesus, it will be a wake-up call, and they will indeed repent. And so the revelation is very clear of this great multitude that is saved during the tribulation. But there'll be scores and millions and billions of people who will not repent. And uh, in fact, they will shake their tiny, puny little fists in the face of God Almighty, the revelation teaches, mocking God when he brings these judgments, uh, because they will believe what is false. Uh, And it will be a current expression of God's wrath. And so you can see how this delusion, uh, delusional thinking will be fulfilled in that day, just uh, as in Noah's day. People didn't listen to Noah. They won't listen in that day either. All right. Uh, We've got a listener from Savannah. They write, I am a youth at a church near Savannah, and I discussed the role of sacrificial animal offerings in the Old Testament with a very knowledgeable man in the church, particularly in relation to the atonement of sin. An affiliation. Or an affiliation, Mm -hmm. rather, with the atonement for sin. Uh, Some of the questions we pondered when trying to pin down the true biblical meaning of animal sacrifices were, Is the animal blood only symbolic? Did the animal blood atone for the sins completely for Old Testament Jews? Did the animal blood only atone for sins until Jesus Christ died, and then his blood became the final atonement? I know from your message entitled Understanding God's Love Story that animal blood is is symbolic, and this also is the conclusion we came to, but I wish to know some passages and ideas for biblical foundation of this concept. Well, the animal sacrifice, <laughs> excuse me, the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed forward to the ultimate sacrifice. All of the rivers of blood that run from Genesis through Malachi were looking forward to that time when Messiah would come. And so when John the Baptist is recorded in John one twenty nine, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Pharisees understood completely what he was saying. He was saying, this is Messiah, pictured through the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. But did they have any efficacy 
And the answer is no. Uh, There are many passages that teach that. Let me just read one uh, in Hebrews 10, verse 4. It says, for it is impossible. doesn't say hard. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. You have taken no pleasure. Then I said, this is Jesus speaking. Uh, It's an Old Testament quotation of what Messiah is going to do. Then I said, behold, I've come in the role of the book that is written of me to do your will, O God. And so after saying above, the writer continues in Hebrews 10, 8, sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you uh, have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Uh, Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified, set apart as holy, Uh, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest, this was true of every priest in the Old Testament, he would stand daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But he, speaking of Messiah, of Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. All the Old Testament priests never sat down. Only Messiah sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. One of these days, Jesus is going to get up off his throne, um, and he's going to come back, and his enemies are going to be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, not multiple offerings, not all the offerings of the Old Testament, again, They were to the death of Christ what baptism is today. As the Old Testament sacrifices and faith look forward to the ultimate sacrifice, baptism likewise is symbolic looking back at the ultimate sacrifice. For by one offering, not multiple, one offering again, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified or set apart. So because of that, he can say their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So in the, and then he makes an interesting statement right at the uh, verse 18 at the end of this pericope. He says, now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So the, the Old Testament priests and the Old Testament believers never had their sins forgiven in time and space until Jesus died. And this, by the way, is what we celebrate when we come to the Lord's Supper. Uh, When we come to the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating what? The new covenant. Uh, This was a covenant described in the Old Testament as something that was future. And so, for instance, in Jeremiah 31, God prophesies a new deal. When we speak of the new covenant, um, you know, our Bible is divided into two halves. We call the Old Testament and the New Testament. We could have just as easily called it as they do in some languages, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So you go to some countries of the world, they'll say, turn to the Old Covenant, or they'll say, turn to the New Covenant. That's what the word testament means. That's just a translation issue. It means covenant, promise, the old deal versus the new deal. The whole days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. 
And then he goes on and he describes what's going to happen. And then he says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. There will be no need to. Why? Because he says, They shall all know me. Not just the Moseses of the day and these special select people who uniquely had access to God to represent the people. We're going to have a priesthood of believers, as the New Testament affirms. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Why? Because... It's causal for I will declare, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. And again, this is what Hebrews 10 quotes, uh, their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. That's a quotation from Jeremiah. So it's not until Jesus actually sheds his blood, makes a full and complete payment for sin that the new covenant is possible because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. And they were only symbolic. Great question. Appreciate it. I have a whole series on Hebrews that individual might want to listen to the messages that I have in Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. The new STS website is going up within a couple of weeks. All of those messages will be easy to access and download at searchthescriptures.org. Let's go to the next question. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Our next caller says there are so many passages in the Bible that refer to answered prayer. As an example, Matthew 7, 7 through 8, Matthew 21, 22, John 14, verses 13 and 14. Yet we know that our prayers are not always answered. For example, a healing of a loved one. How do we put these into perspective with passages that say that we are to seek God's will and knowing our prayers will not always be answered? Well, um, it's a great question, and it's sometimes one we struggle with because people will often abuse promises, and they'll make them broader and wider than the Word of God actually makes them. Uh, For instance, take healing. For instance, our charismatic brothers will take a text out of Isaiah 53 uh, that is an interesting passage of Scripture, and they'll apply it today wholesale to every Christian who wants to believe it by faith, where, again, it says, uh, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet uh, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was cr- uh, pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Most of you know this passage. This is uh, like an eyewitness standing at the foot of the cross uh, 700 years before Christ. And he describes in great and full detail what the Messiah is going to do. And then he goes on and he'll say, and by his stripes ye are healed. So the question becomes, you know, what kind of healing did the death and the piercing through of Messiah accomplish? Well, interestingly, when Peter quotes this passage in the New Testament, he gives us some divine commentary on it in 1 Peter 3. And he makes, or 1 Peter 2, he makes the the healing 
uh, primarily spiritual in, in, in nature and not um, physical in nature. So, for instance, let, let's see if we can put these thoughts together. In 1 John 5, it says, and this is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, then we know that we have the request that we have asked from him. So if I know, for instance, that I am definitively praying something that is according to the will of God, then I know God has heard me and I know that God has answered me. So is there a definitive promise, for instance, that God will heal all of his people? And the answer is no. And so when people use Isaiah 53, by his stripes you are healed, and they say, well, just like by faith you receive the forgiveness of your sin, so by faith you receive the healing of your sicknesses. And therefore, uh, they will say, if you are not healed from your sickness, it's because of your lack of faith. Well, that's not true because there is not a wholesale promise that God will heal every sickness. Um, God allows some sickness. Um, God allows some infirmity. Uh, When God interacts with Moses in that great um, mountaintop event that Moses has, and he meets God at the burning bush. Uh, and God says, look, is it not I that made some dumb and some unable to hear and so forth? God takes responsibility for some infirmities that people have. Uh, if indeed it was always God's will for people to be healed, was it Paul's lack of faith that whatever physical ailment he had, and we can debate what that might be, whether it was an eye problem or whatever, that's irrelevant. He did have some kind of physical ailment that he describes in 2 Corinthians 12, and he said three times he sought the Lord to heal him, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. In weakness, you're going to find, you know, my grace and my power. So it's not always the will of God for his people to be healed. And if it were, in one sense, none of us would probably ever die except from natural causes, uh, unless you think it's just one's lack of faith. So sometimes we are, as Christians, disillusioned in prayer because we're trying to claim a promise that just doesn't exist. And other times we don't see the answer to our prayers as we ought because the conditions of the promise are not met. And there are some promises in the Word of God that are conditional in nature. And that certainly applies, uh, certainly, to answer prayer. Uh, John 15 uh, teaches that. Uh, Listen to this. By this is my Father glorified, uh, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to me my disciples. Well, what's the context of that? Well, let me back it up a verse. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, And it shall be done for you by this, by what? By the fact that you're living in Christ, he's living in you. There's a clean, clear relationship between you and God. Then you can ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So if you're abiding in him and his word is abiding in you, and that's the problem is sometimes we're not abiding in him. So when Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. 
Or when Isaiah the prophet says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Let me finish the verse. So he does not hear. Really, the context of Isaiah's statement is given not to unbelievers, but to believers. And he's giving them a reason why God would not hear. He doesn't say, if I sin, the Lord will not hear. The psalmist says, if I regard, if I cling to, if I hold on to iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear. So if my heart's not clean, God's um, answers to prayers are very often restricted. This is why it's essential that we we walk in the Spirit. Uh, when James says the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much, what kind of righteousness is he speaking about there, practical or positional? Well, you have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Sure, it's a given in terms of positional righteousness. If you don't have a positional righteousness, then you don't really have any basis in which to claim the promises of God to answer prayer. Because the promises in the Word of God, with the exception of Romans 10, uh, for prayer are given to God's people. I think, he's thinking, I think he's speaking of practical righteousness, that Elijah, you know, who had a practical righteousness, we think of him sometimes as, you know, a, a fellow with a halo and some guy, you know, who's so different from us, but he had the exact same nature as ours, James highlights. He's saying, look, it, he was a human just like us. He's, he's cut out of the same piece of cloth that you're cut out of. But he is a man who walked with God. And so God here is the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. And again, righteousness has to be connected. You have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So some prayers are not answered because I'm not abiding in him, or some prayers are not answered because his word is not abiding in me. I'm trying to claim something that God doesn't give me permission or freedom to claim. You know, sometimes I don't know whether it's God's will to heal a person. Now, sometimes I will pray for their healing. Look, if I'm dying of cancer, don't pray for me. God, if it's your will, you know, heal Pastor Carl. Pray, God, heal Pastor Carl. And and, uh, and if God wants to say no, let him say no, all right? Um, but we don't always know what the will of God is in some circumstances. And we have to rest that God is sovereign and he knows what he is about. Uh, some will take passages like James and say, well, you know, if the prayer is offered in in, in, in faith, uh, you know, when a man approaches the elders of the church, if anyone is among you suffering, let him pray. If he's cheerful, let him sing praises. Is any among you sick? Well, let him call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders, pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. They would say, there it is. You know, it's just a matter of faith. Well, again, context is everything. By the way, this is not some guy with a healing ministry traveling the country going to you. This is an individual in a local church where the elders don't come to him, but he comes to the elders. And by the way, there's not one elder. It's, there is a plurality of elders. It's not the elder of the church. It's not the elders of the churches. It's the elders, plural, of the church because there's a plurality of elders in the New Covenant Church. And so if someone is sick, he's calling the elders of the church and they're praying over him. They're anointing him with oil, not because the oil has any um, uh, ability to bring about healing. I don't think that's what's in view. Um, I think what's in view is he's dealing with someone who is out of fellowship and out of sync with the local assembly. 
and there is some sickness very clearly according to 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 30, that is caused because of sin. Uh, Paul highlights that in 1 Corinthians. He says, listen, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, some of you have even died. Why? Because of unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life. And sometimes, you know, when a person rebels against the authority of the elders in a church and, and they're rebelling against God and and they're brought under church discipline and they're removed from the fellowship of the local assembly, they begin to develop physical problems. And sometimes the person becomes aware, I'm under God's discipline. This is stupid for me to resist an all-powerful, holy, loving, heavenly Father. And they come back to the elders of the church and they said, listen, I've sinned uh, against God and against his people and I, I need to ask for forgiveness. And in those context, the elders sometimes have a sense this is genuine repentance, and in faith they can set the person apart and say, listen, they can be received back into the fellowship, and their prayer offered in faith will bring a restoration of the person's body. And it's in that context that verse 16 is given, therefore confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. How? Physically. This is not talking about people sitting around in some small group Bible study sharing your dirty laundry with one another. The context is of an individual who's under the discipline of a local assembly. He's coming to the elders of the church in repentance, and they are setting him apart with oil, saying he's been restored, and then God lifts his disciplinary hand. But again, when we take verses out of context, we start claiming promises that have nothing to do with us or miss the original uh, context in which they were given, then, yeah, we'll become disillusioned in prayer quite often. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Our next uh, person dictated their question. They write, uh, our world is very uncertain, and we know the time may be short. A young mother would like you to address how and or even if she should evangelize to lost neighbors or people that may turn hostile or be unreceptive. We know we're to be bold in our witness, but it just seems like we can't always be met with a friendly curiosity or conversation. And this listener wants to be sure she's not subjecting her children to this kind of hostility if it doesn't go well. Well, you know, God has commanded us to go and win people in spite of circumstances. You know, there, there are times in the church uh, that it was very, very difficult to be a Christian. And what is very interesting is that the world that Jesus Christ came into, uh, he comes into a dark world that he is like a bright, bright light in the midst of darkness, as the Old Testament prophets predicted. That same atmosphere is what it will be like when he returns. And so it was a dark time in human history when Christ came. And when a Christian in the first century uh, witnessed and stood for Christ, many times it would uh, cost him his life. They they dealt with different theological issues that we didn't deal with. For instance, one of the issues they dealt with is, uh, should a Christian who was threatened with death and ended up denying that they were a Christian and then repenting, 
Should they be rebaptized and brought into the church? Was their initial salvation real? Uh, should they be accepted back? I mean, they were dealing with a whole different set of issues because of the great persecution that was coming upon them. Issues with marrying in First Corinthians 7. You know, hey, in light of the present difficulties, what should I do with my virgin daughter who wants to be married? Should I let her get married? In light of the fact that her husband could be wiped out next month. And, you know, um, they were dealing with a whole different set of issues. But that didn't stop them. Uh, when the apostles' lives were threatened with uh, persecution, they said, listen, basically, bottom line, we must obey God rather than men. So we've been commanded and commissioned by Christ. Now, I don't think that we should you know, necessarily um, be abrasive. I mean, we should never be abrasive. But what I'm trying to say is I don't think that means necessarily you go banging on your next door neighbor's door. Um, you have to pray for open doors and for opportunities as God would give them. But there are opportunities most every day in some way, shape, or form if we have eyes to see them. And yes, there may be some resistance to the gospel, and that's where you need to be discerning. Uh, Jesus said, judge with righteous judgment. Uh, people often quote, judge not lest you be judged, but he also said, judge with righteous judgment. And even the context of judge not lest you be judged involves some discernment because he tells us in the next verse that we're not to cast our pearl before swine, lest it be what's holy, be trampled in the mud. There, there's a time to withhold the gospel pearl and not to share because there's such an utter disdain and blasphemous response to the things of God. But if it means that, you know, you're going to be persecuted. That's not a reason not to share. Uh, sometimes we need to teach our children by example that there will be some people who will ostracize us and no longer call us over to their homes for social issues and other things because we represent Christ and they don't want us there. That's part of the Christian life. And if we don't prepare our kids for this, they get off to the university campus and there are some people who don't like them because, you know, they go to a Bible study during the week or they don't smoke weed and get drunk and all these other things. And all of a sudden they're ostracized. Listen, we have to prepare them by our own witness and our own example so that they can stand strong in the midst of difficult times. 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at wagp.net, as has this listener who writes from Missouri. How can I tell if my church is... Is it Missouri or Missouri? I decided I was going to go with Missouri that Just time. Just curious. But, uh, yeah, yeah, I've heard it both ways. All right. <laughs> okay. Uh, this person says, how can I tell if my church is d- dying and if it's time to find a new one? Earlier this year, I retired from the Marines and have settled in the Fort Leonard Wood area. The church we've joined is named Emmanuel Chapel Bible Church. It's an IFCA church. It was small when we joined about five years ago, about 30 people on a Sunday. Homeschool friendly with other homeschool families we've developed close relationships with. We have grown in the faith. I've taught some Sunday school and occasionally filled in for the pastor. I was hoping to see it grow, but it has not. In fact, it's gotten smaller, less than 10 on a Sunday, including the kids. We can barely afford to keep the lights on. There's a host of Sunday school rooms downstairs with cobwebs. They weren't in use long before we started attending. I think the teaching is solid. The pastor is part-time, always has been. I like him a lot. It's about an hour drive from where we live. Also, some family dynamics have changed as many of the children have gotten older, married, etc., and are gone. My own children included as my oldest started college at College of the Ozarks this year. I'm torn between being loyal 
helping to grow the church, which is tough due to the drive and work and jumping ship. What are your thoughts? Well, um, it's a good question. By the way, you did pronounce it correctly. That's how they say it there. Is it? Yeah. Oh, okay. you, you say it just like you're from there. <laughs> um, here's the deal. Uh, the International uh, Fellowship, uh, Independent Fundamental Churches of America, IFCA, is a good organization. And so sometimes when a church associates, associates with that, and some Bible churches do, some independent Baptist churches do, and others, uh, to basically give someone a some kind of peg that they can hold on to in terms of where the church stands doctrinally. Oh, yeah, if they have Awana, they believe such and such because they have Awana. The Awana ministry has to approve you, and you have to hold to certain doctrinal positions. Or So sometimes those uh, identification marks can be, ident- uh, can be helpful to someone looking for a church. But lay that aside, um, and again, I don't want to make a judgment on this pastor you know, here's this fellow who, you know, is uh, bivocational, and he uh, tries to, you know, minister and reach out. But it sounds to me, just the little that I'm hearing from your email, that most of your growth has been biological growth only. And now that some of the kids are growing up and going off to college and getting married and other things like that, it doesn't sound like they're really reaching their community for Christ. Now, some churches can stay at the same level uh, and still be growing in the sense that uh, there are people who want to Christ on a regular basis, but they're in a fluid community where folks leave. And But if you're at 30 and now you're at 10, um, you know, I, I would just uh, encourage you maybe to get with the pastor since you obviously play a key leadership role and to pause and to ask, you know, what can we do to bring some new blood in here? Because I think what's happened is, is though the teaching may be sound, your evangelistic zeal and focus is misdirected or lost altogether. I've seen a lot of Bible churches like this, by the way, in Dallas, um, the greater metroplex area, churches that were 75, 50, 45, 100, some led by seminary professors who were extremely articulate, sound in theology, but they just weren't functioning as a church in terms of going and making disciples, baptizing them as new believers and then teaching them all that Christ taught. And they had become a holy huddle and comfortable in that. And sometimes they have enough money coming in to turn the lights on and off and they're happy to stay there. But that's not really how a local church is to function. And there comes at some point in terms of size where you really can't function as a local church in the truest sense. If you have 10 people, women, children, and dads and moms, you know, total, you don't even have enough people to represent the various gifts of the Spirit that are necessary for the maturation of the body. So this church needs to take a hard look. Um, You know, sometimes people say, well, I I go to church. Where do you go to church? Well, we have this Bible study in my home. There's two families. We get together. We have home church. Sounds real spiritual, but not very biblical. Um, listen, in some home church, you don't have enough people represented to do what a local church is supposed to do in terms of elders, deacons. It's just, you know, so in my view, this church should either shut its doors or it needs to reevaluate and go forward. And you're going to have to ask an answer for yourself because sometimes people are raising their children and they just have a sliver of time in which to do it. And you certainly want to give your children the best possible model of Christianity that you can provide. And listen, I've been in communities 
um, in years past where there was not a healthy church. But I got involved in the best one that I could be in. And hopefully by God's grace, when I was not a pastor, but in full-time ministry and campus ministry, I got involved in the best church I could be in. And still, that didn't mean I couldn't give my children a model of what a healthy church was. And sometimes uh, God calls people to just start a brand new church, to find some other like-minded people and start a Bible study and then start doing what you should be doing, sharing your faith on a regular basis and winning some people to Jesus and helping them to grow. And and, uh, new Christians are often very much ignited people because all their friends are unsaved people and they start bringing their friends and there's a multiplication effect that begins to transpire. But you don't want to miss the window you have as your children are growing up in exposing them to the best possible model that you can. Uh, You want them to see dynamic, healthy Christianity, if at all possible, certainly beginning in your own home, but also in that local fellowship and church. So you've got some serious thinking and praying to do. Great question. Let's go to the next one. Well, actually, we're out of questions, but in relation to that, um, as a jumpstart method, uh, would you maybe recommend some type of a blitz around Easter time? Yeah, there's a lot of things that they could do. Um, My guess, again, is that they have lost their vision in terms of reaching people for Christ. I was speaking recently to a pastor, and I said, listen, you've got to motivate your people to begin to invite folks just during the week to church. And I said, but you cannot lead them where you yourself have not been. And so I said, you know, what's a reasonable amount of people for you to invite yourself personally to church every week? Five, ten, let's set a number. So you set a number. Let's say you say, I'm going to invite as the pastor of the church, ten people every week to church. As I'm in and around the community, being friendly with people, in a checkout line, in a dentist's office, uh, my next-door neighbor walking the neighborhood, wherever I am, out for a stroll with my wife. As I talk to people, I'm going to invite 10 people a week. Fantastic. Do that. I said, Saturday night, it's 7 o'clock, and you've only invited six. What are you going to do? I'm going to go someplace and find four more. I said, that's the kind of spirit that you need if your people are ever going to catch it. Um, and you need to reignite that congregation. And then what happens when they come? Uh, do they have any avenue for follow-up? Uh, does anyone ever call them? Find out if they're a Christian. Find out if they're a non-Christian. If they're a non-Christian, then they have an opportunity to hear a clear presentation of the gospel. It may be that this dear pastor that you're describing doesn't even know how to take someone through the plan of salvation. You say, you've got to be kidding me. I'm not kidding you at all. I meet pastors like that all the time. They know how to preach from the pulpit, but they don't know how to one-on-one, eyeball-to-eyeball, take someone through a clear presentation of Christ. Now, I've seen them try to do it when I've tried to help them, and I'll say, look, at someone couldn't become a Christian with that presentation of the gospel. God is sovereign, but he still uses the same message that has to be done in clarity. So, anyway... Great question. We are out of time today. There were a number of questions, Rick, that has come to our STS website we haven't even begun to look at yet. Maybe we can hit some of those next week in some more questions. Uh, This, by the way, is posted every week online with the order in which the questions are asked. And so um, if there's a question that you need to share with a friend, send them to searchthescripture.org and they can download it into their iPod or onto their computer. Have a great day. God bless you.